This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.5, The Descendants of Earth, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and... I swear I had something for this. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, Gundam... guy. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob and fan of science magic. This week, we watch episode 5, Reentry to Earth, and we're joined by a very special guest. Say hi, special guest. Hi. My name's Iraj. I'm friends with Tom and Nina from, uh, what's it, five years of doing uh, karate together. I studied physics in undergrad. Now I'm doing my PhD in physics as well, specifically soft matter physics. But I know some stuff about space and I really like sci-fi. I think that's why I'm here. I don't watch as much anime as I think I should for having a proper credentials for this podcast, but I think Tom and Nina have that covered. For the benefit of my friend who doesn't know, what is soft matter physics? It's very literally the science of squishy things. So I specifically study soft matter biophysics. So I study how DNA moves around inside of cells and why it's squishy the way it is. Turns out it's very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would be simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> I'm excited to be part of this. And you've never watched Gundam before? I have never watched Gundam before. Although I might have seen some mecha anime before when I was a kid, but I don't really remember. Sure. Might have been Gundam. Or something similar. Mm. Yes. Something with children in mecha screaming. <laughs> with Iraj's help, we'll talk about sponsor interference, nuclear accidents, boys, toys, and trauma, more about the weird physics of the Minovsky particle. Old people don't even care about nothing. A thousand years of hot towels, and I'm rounding down. And a surprisingly long discussion of coffee farmers in South America. I promise that will make sense. But before we begin, you ought to know a little bit about the history of humans in space and how they got back to Earth. The name of the episode is Reentry to Earth, and it focuses on just that. To understand why they would devote an entire episode to something we now think of as routine, it helps to understand the timeline of the history of spaceflight. The first unmanned satellite, Sputnik 1, went up in October 4th of 1957. The first to carry a living animal, like the dog, was Sputnik 3, on May 15th of 1958. The first manned spaceflight, with cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, was April 12th of 1961. Apollo 11 successfully landed on the moon July 20th, 1969, and had six more successful landings through 1972. The first space stations, mostly manned orbital reconnaissance stations, were launched in 67 and 68, and the Soviet program wasn't canceled until 1978. The American station, Skylab, which was only manned from May of 73 to February of 74, fell to Earth in July of 1979, the same year Gundam was released, showering Western Australia with debris. Do you know where the first colony hit the Earth? Was it Australia? It was. What a coincidence. All of the previous launches I mentioned involved craft that would have been more or less destroyed and not reusable after they made re-entry. The first reusable spacecraft, NASA's Space Shuttle, was not launched until April 12th of 1981. So while it would have been in development at the time the Gundam was made, the idea of a reusable spacecraft was still very new and untested technology. So keep that in mind, and let's watch the episode. The White Base has escaped from Shar's attack on Luna 2, but space remains Zeon territory. They won't be able to rest until they reach the Federation headquarters on Earth, and that means re-entry. 
But while the White Base and its escort, a re-entry capsule dispatched from a Federation battleship, prepare to enter the atmosphere, Shar receives three more Zakus and makes his own plan to attack. At the most crucial moment, while the White Base is off balance, Shar and his squadron attack. Amuro launches in the Gundam to hold them off. All the pilots know that this battle must end, one way or another, in four short minutes. Any longer, and they will be drawn in by Earth's gravity and burn up in the atmosphere. Amuro has improved as a pilot, but facing four Zakus at once is too much for him. Every time he turns to focus on one, the other three attack the white base and the re-entry capsule. He focuses too much on Shar, exhausting his ammunition without landing a hit on the red comet. But with the aid of a new weapon, a spiked flail called the Gundam Hammer, Amuro is able to hold his own, yet he cannot stop one of the Zakus from blasting the re-entry capsule. Its commander, Lieutenant Reed, is wounded and forced to land aboard the white base. Time's up, and Shah returns to his own re-entry shuttle to prepare for the descent. His last remaining wingman, Crown, is too focused on fighting the white base and ignores orders to return. Amuro, too, refuses to return before his enemy has been totally annihilated. Soon they are in the atmosphere, both suits glowing red hot. The white base is forced to close its shutters, losing sight of Amuro and his fate. As Crown's Zaku disintegrates, Shar comforts him with the knowledge that he has managed to force the Gundam into re-entry, and now it will surely be destroyed as well. But Shar is wrong again about the Gundam's capabilities. Consulting the manual, Amuro finds the section on unassisted re-entry and deploys the Gundam's heat-proof film. As the white base reaches the stratosphere and opens its shutters, our heroes are greeted by the sight of the Gundam and the knowledge that Amuro has made it once again. For now, at least. Shar's attack forced the white base to alter its course and descend into Xeon-controlled territory. Shar has already contacted Captain Garmazavi of the Xeon Earth Occupation Forces, and now a massive contingent of Xeon troops is on the way to intercept the white base. The animation in this episode is so bad. Yeah, it got dramatically worse all of a sudden. Everyone always talks about how bad the animation in First Gundam is, but when you're watching those first couple of episodes, it doesn't really seem like it. It's like, oh, this is this 1970s animation. Not great, but then it goes off a cliff. I assume that they made the first four episodes all at once before it started airing, and then they had to make episodes really quickly on a short budget without enough animators. You'll notice as you watch the episode, there are a lot of zooms and pans that would not have necessitated animating any additional frames. There's also a lot of scenes where most of the scene is static. There's one tiny portion being animated. There are some cells where you can see grit or dust on the cell that I'm sure someone noticed somewhere along the way and there just wasn't time or money to redo it. What's a cell? So in order to save money doing animation at this point before computers made it cheap and easy, what they would do is they would take translucent pieces of film. They would draw small pieces of the animation on it. So like an arm or a hand or part of a face. And then rather than reanimating an entire scene, they just layer these cells on top of each other and then switch certain ones out. So you'd have a background and then you would have the cells on top of it. And then you could switch out different cells to create the animation over the background instead of redrawing the whole scene over and over again. That's, that's pretty smart. It's why in a lot of old American animation, like Scooby-Doo, for instance, you can tell which thing is going to move before it does because it's the one that looks different because they've painted a backdrop and then they've layered animation cells on it. That's why. Okay. So in this episode, a couple of times, they do a shot where a ship is very quickly descending and another ship is in the background. You'll be able to tell that there's a cell there mm -hmm. and you can see all the grit and dust on it. Luckily, it looks enough like stars that you can, <laughs> I think they get away with it. It's space dust. Yeah. Well, in one of the scenes with Captain Paolo, you can see a place where they accidentally colored part of his neck, the color of his shirt. So they were very clearly in a hurry. They also reused that scene of the hull repair film that they have. Oh, that was the exact same shot as a couple episodes before? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah <laughs> you can tell. Very similar. You can tell because it's better animated than everything that happens before <laughs> and after it. 
That's and really cool technology, by the way. Yeah, you were saying during the episode that that would actually work? I think it would. When I first saw it, I wasn't sure, but it, it seems at first glance that it would. If you just had some sticky stuff that would somehow float up into the whatever hole you had into space. Well, presumably if the compartment is decompressing, anything in it would be drawn right. towards the hole. Right. It just has to be light enough and big enough and sticky enough. As long as the bubble gum is bigger than the, <laughs> the hole. They have giant space mecha, so they can probably figure out how to make sticky <laughs> floaty stuff. Although you were pointing out it felt really incongruous to you they were so worried about atmospheric reentry. Yeah, yeah. The fact that that was such a big focus of this episode was pretty funny to me because it's something that around the time this was being made this is a technology people were worried about because of the space shuttle program. But if you have space mecha but you're worried about reentry, that seems pretty odd to me. We developed ceramics pretty fast around this time that can withstand that repeatedly. So it's funny to look back and think that it was something people were so worried about at the time. Perhaps part of why they make reentry such a big deal here is to underscore the fact that the Earth itself is in a way hostile to all of these space noids. The Earth will kill you. Is it supposed to make it feel safe for the Federation in some level, or or is it supposed to be just hostile to everybody? I think it should feel safe for the Federation, but they sort of do a bait and switch. It feels like, oh, we're getting back to Earth, this is where the Federation is, we'll be safe, and then they land, it's like, oh, this is a Xeon-controlled continent. Xeon has continents? It's true. This is the first time we get any hint about the status of the war, big picture, and on Earth. And up until now, we sort of kind of maybe think that the Federation has all of Earth. And then we find out, no, as a matter of fact, Xeon has made quite a few inroads on Earth. There are parts of Earth that are not safe. I think it's also an opportunity for them to once again show us how advanced the Gundam is, how much better it is than all the other technology. I mean, we actually see it side by side with the Zaku. The Zaku burns up horrifically. The Gundam deploys Space Poncho and is miraculously un unscathed. I love the Space Poncho. We should all have Space Ponchos. How often do you do re-entry things? Uh, I don't know, but you know, when it gets really hot outside in New York, <laughs> I would like to have a space poncho. You notice that chairs magically come out of well, not magically, technologically come out of the floor when they're getting ready for re-entry. Yeah. It's good technology. Excellent tech. I want it in all the rooms. All of these things are low tech, right? All the things we've talked about really loving the gel that they use to seal the breaches in the hull. And, you know, you talked a couple of episodes ago about the way they transition around in the ship. They have the handles that come out of the walls and they like take them down the corridors to where they need to go. And then chairs coming up out of this floor. It's all pretty low tech. It's all mechanical. It with, yeah, but it's just so thoughtful. I mean, that's something that you see in a lot of good sci-fi. It's stuff that people can imagine working and is fairly relatable, but is also innovative and cool. And speaking of low-tech solutions to science fiction problems, the manual saves the day again. My favorite character. And <laughs> all of the manuals are paper manuals. Obviously, now we wouldn't necessarily even think of. Like, uh, it would all be in a computer, or it would be... Touchscreens or holograms. Or you, would, or you would talk to it. Hey, Siri, tell me how to shoot these right. missiles. <laughs> the manual would be in the Gundam, right? It'd be in the operating system. I have to say, most technical manuals I see people using are still massive paperbacks. It might be because a lot of the tech I see is very outdated, or because science people are mostly creatures of habit, but paper manuals are still common and the bane of our existence. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. None of these manuals look all that big, which does seem unrealistic. I imagine an actual manual for the Gundam would be more like a phone book. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't just flip through it and find the section on how to shoot the gun right before Char is right on top of you. I think probably Amaro has been studying the manual and he saw that there was a section on reentry and so he knew that he could do it. But I like to imagine that he didn't and he was just flipping through the index like, oh, reentry, ways <laughs> to survive. Page 128. Space Poncho. Even in future space Japan, even on the run from an enemy, 
We have hot towels. They'll refresh you before you get to Earth. There were, there were hot it's towels. The, it's the opening scene of the episode. Amuro and Frau are walking around with baskets full of hot towels so, for, for everyone to refresh themselves oh, before that's they great get to they land. land. That's, so they can that's good. Like, look and feel nice when they arrive at Earth. Well, and this is the most time we spend with non-combatant refugees in quite a few episodes. I thought the old man and his grandson were a particularly poignant example, especially the old man saying, on the one hand, he never thought he would get to go back to Earth. On the other, now that they're going back, he doesn't want to leave. Mm. He fully intends to die on Earth. If they try to make him leave, he won't go. It's interesting that he's a coffee farmer, because around this time, a lot of... Clarify, Universal Century, or... (laughs) Sorry, I should clarify. Around 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, in the real world timeline, a lot of older Japanese people around the age of this character who had immigrated to South America during Japan's more colonial period, and had often found work as coffee farmers, were starting now in their old age to move back to Japan. And it was a social issue because it turns out that when you live most of your life in another country and then move back, there's some cultural conflict that maybe people weren't expecting. Within Japan, the conception of what makes you Japanese is very tied to your blood. And so there is this sense that somehow by having Japanese ancestry, by having Japanese blood, the culture will just live in you. There's always a lot of surprise when someone doesn't conform to that, either because they live abroad for some portion of time or they grow up abroad. And then culturally, there's something else. But the expectation is, wait a second, you're full-blood Japanese. How do you not know how to behave? How do you not know what we expect of you? So setting this character up as a coffee farmer from South America really suggests that when he was written, the writers were thinking about those Japanese immigrants just like this guy coming back to Earth. Possibly hinting at some future conflict that we'll witness when our side seven returnees finally have a moment to breathe. The other thing that it made me think of a lot, actually, is the Fukushima Daiichi and Daini. These would be the Fukushima nuclear power plants that were damaged in an earthquake. And tsunami. And tsunami. Mm. And the areas around them were evacuated. And a number of elderly people basically said, I don't care about the radiation. If I get cancer now, what does it matter? That's my home. I'm going home to die. You can't make me leave. (laughs) There's a strong sense from a lot of those elderly people that, well, obviously you don't want young people to grow up within all this radiation that could harm them. But we're so old, what does it matter? And we would rather suffer the fact that the area has been completely shut down than try to make a fresh start in some new place. I noticed with the child, he's so fixated on that car. That's childhood trauma and the response to it. Perhaps there's a parallel there to Amuro and his fixation Mm. on the Gundam. Well, his avoidance of thinking about his father until the very end of this episode. He really hasn't let himself think about what might have happened to his father. At the beginning, the old man asks him about his parents. He says, oh, my, my mom's on Earth. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting moment because I don't think his mom is mentioned at all until that point. Right? No. He doesn't seem to care or think about her that often, or at least doesn't talk about her. And it doesn't seem that she lives with him because in the very first episode, Fra mentions to Hayato, you know Amaro lives alone, so neither of his parents are with him, really. Right. In theory, his dad lives with him, but his dad is traveling for work constantly. I've made reference in the previous episode to the setting notes that were an internal document created by Sunrise to make sure everyone was on the same page for this show. There's very little information in there about Amuro, but they do mention two things about him, one of which is that he's obsessed with technology, and the other is that he has a mother complex. Whatever that's supposed to mean. Well, we'll find out when he gets to Earth, I hope. This Minovsky particle thing is really is really upsetting me. <laughs> Please go on. So wait, can you guys first kind of expand on what we know so far about it? Practically nothing. In the show, basically, there exists a Minovsky particle. Because of the particle, we don't have long-range communication, and we have to fight in visual range. That's all we know in the show. Tom has a bunch of meta-knowledge. Mm-hmm. There's actually one scene in episode three where Shar and Gadem, the supply officer, are communicating and Gadam says something like, Shar, don't you think it's suspicious? The Minovsky particle density is too high. And that's the first warning they have that they're about to be attacked. 
So right. they can use the density of Minovsky particles to kind of extrapolate that there is a ship or a mobile suit in a particular area. They can also use this to make some kind of like a cloaking device. Is this something they do at some point? It's not a true cloaking device because it doesn't really interfere with the visual, but you can intentionally distribute Minovsky particles in order to make you undetectable by long range sensors. Okay. The funny thing with these is that this was all happening at a time when people were discovering all sorts of fundamental particles and it was an exciting time for particle physics and all that. And so the idea is you could maybe come up with a particle that interacts with radio communications, but not with light. Because I mean, if you couldn't see anything, that would, that would be pretty bad. We have a pretty effective way of blocking all electromagnetic fields, and that's called metal, which is why when you go in an elevator, your phone doesn't work. We call it a Faraday cage. So you could do that and radio communications wouldn't work, but then you couldn't see. So that would be bad. It's kind of crazy to me to think of something that could interact with some part of the spectrum of electromagnetic waves and not a different part. But then again, there are things that don't interact with radio and do interact with light, like walls. So maybe this isn't absolutely crazy, but... It, the reverse of a wall. Exactly. It's an <laughs> anti-wall, maybe. They should have called it the anti-wall particle. The anti-wall particle. From a particle physics perspective, it's kind of weird to think of it as uh, that there would be a special type of particle, because most of the time when you think about a particle's interactions, it interacts with some types of fields or not. So say like electrically charged particles interact with the electromagnetic field and that's it. And then depending on the configuration, you're going to interact with some parts of the spectrum and not others. Or I don't know if you have, okay, if you have, if you have like a pion or something, it's going to interact with the weak force and the strong force. That's uh, science language. That's science using. language. <laughs> this yeah. is why we have a science advisor. <laughs> Say like a neutrino isn't going to interact with light, which is why people think that maybe dark matter is made of neutrinos. And that's why we call it dark matter because it doesn't interact with light. But having something that interacts with some parts of the electromagnetic spectrum and not others is a weird thought, unless it's some weird compound like a wall. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and then it would resonate with some frequencies of light and not others because radio is just a very, very low frequency form of light. So yeah, I'm still grappling with this idea of a Minovsky <laughs> particle. It's, it's upsetting to me. Well, it does some other stuff too. Okay. It doesn't just do that stuff. Okay. The beam weapons, okay. both the beam sabers and the beam rifles are firing higher energy Minovsky particles. Okay. So they're a massive particle probably. I think they might use them for propulsion. I'm not positive on that. Okay. That would suggest mass. Yeah. I mean, you can you can technically use light for propulsion. You just need a, a, a lot of it. Because <laughs> light, light has momentum, but not much. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that, would, that, would, that would be hard. It's, they sound a little like um, metachlorians in, in the Star Wars <laughs> universe. They kind of bring them in and they're like, they do magic things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I refer to them as the lie that makes everything else true. Yeah. Maybe they don't, maybe they couldn't work, but if you just accept them, they make all of the other technology work rationally. This is true. And that's another hallmark of good sci-fi is when you can narrow down all of the inconsistencies to one assumption that you have to make. This episode also gives us the Gundam Hammer, a um, interesting weapon. It's just a big mace, right? Yeah, yeah it's well, it's a futuristic space mace. And he initially uses it to block a missile, although I don't think that's intentional. No, I think that it just is happens. the luckiest. It just happens to block a missile on its way to him. Almar says something about the Gundam hammer traveling too fast. I think if it hadn't hit that missile, he might not have been able to catch it. He is the luckiest. Watching that particular scene, I guess it depends on the relative weights of the Gundam versus the Gundam hammer. But would that even be possible in space? Wouldn't they both just wind up spinning around? Or <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you guys know about conservation of momentum and conservation of angular momentum and all that. You might want to explain them a little bit. Okay, so angular momentum and momentum are both kind of just a measure of how much stuff is moving in a specific place. So if something has a lot of momentum, typically you think of it as either it's a lot of mass moving slowly or a small amount of mass moving really fast. And angular momentum is the same thing but with rotations. We typically say that an isolated system, so a bunch of stuff interacting, say, in space where it can't be in touched by anything else, 
you have conservation of momentum and angular momentum. So this is why, say, when you play pool, when you have two pool balls that like hit each other, you can predict exactly where they're going to go because you know how much momentum each of them have. The momentum can't go anywhere else but in the other pool ball. So it's going to go in a specific direction. And so for this reason, if you're in space, so this is how rockets work, right? If you're if you're in space and you shoot some stuff in one direction, you're going to shoot in the opposite direction. This is what happens when you, I don't know if you guys have ever used a leaf blower before, right? You feel blowback or mm. I don't know, if you shoot a gun, you get recoil, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, the same thing happens with the rotation. So if you're spinning a mace above your head in space, you're going to start spinning in the opposite direction, unless the mace is much, much lighter than you, at which point it's not a really useful mace. Well, we see the mace hitting a Zaku, and the Zaku gets wrecked by it. Right. We know the mace has a lot of, we assume, mass. There's a lot of inertia. Or maybe tiny rockets. (laughs) Or maybe tiny rockets. Uh, Later, (laughs) later there will be space melee weapons with rockets attached. Okay. They're not here yet. Honestly, that's a great idea. I think we should do that to all our melee weapons. But yeah, if it's any good at knocking things around, it's probably heavy. And if it's heavy, you probably can't swing it. You could probably use it, but it would have to be very different than the way you swing a mace on Earth. Mm -hmm. Um, And the hand-to-hand combat you see in this episode looks a lot like medieval combat you see in movies on Earth. So this wouldn't work in space. Potentially, if the Gundam was much more massive than the Zaku. Right. And the hammer were somewhere in between, then all that could work. But we saw in earlier episodes where the Zaku, by kicking and punching and charging, was able to knock the Gundam around. So we think their mass is probably about the same. Yeah, yeah. They seem to be comparable. Otherwise, they couldn't. The Zaku would have to just resort to long-range weapons all the time, which they don't. It's making me rethink... An earlier scene where Char charges at Amuro, and Amuro braces, <laughs> which would be a silly thing to do in space. And Char calls him an amateur. Right. And I thought in that scene, it was meant to be a comment on, oh, that's not how space fighting works, you dummy. But... Maybe it wasn't meant to draw attention to the physics. Maybe it was just meant to be, oh, it's an amateur move to freeze up and not try to get out of the, to dodge or get out of the way. Possibly. I will say for the Gundam Hammer, let's not hold it against the creators too much. My, they needed more toys. <laughs> my, my understanding is that the Gundam Hammer was forced upon them by the toy makers. They oh. wanted another accessory they could sell. That's great. And, and also, I mean, I think this is a universal thing. People that say that a piece of media is worse because it's not scientifically accurate are boring. And I don't like them. So <laughs> you can have good sci-fi and have it be inaccurate. I.e., I don't know, Star Wars is fun, even though it's completely impossible and garbage (laughs) from a science perspective. I'm glad that as our science advisor, you have that perspective. (laughs) Also, bracing in space could work if you used your, like, rockets that Mm. Gundam has on on his back. But he didn't. Oh. Yeah, yeah. he just stood there behind his shield. No, that's dumb. Well, he even, even, the legs of the Gundam move as though he were bracing himself on the ground. (laughs) Ugh, amateur. One of the after-the-fact justifications for why mecha have to be shaped like people, or should be shaped like people, rather, is that it allows propulsionless redistribution of the mecha's mass while in space, which is to say that by moving an arm, they can rotate the, the mecha a little bit. Moving arms and legs, they can move around. But they could be octopus-shaped. They could be a lot of shapes that have arms. Oh, just wait. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are a lot of shapes that have appendages. Yeah, as long as they're not fears. <laughs> but as, a, as opposed to, say, a fighter plane design. Okay. As opposed to a rigid spaceship design. I mean, you're in space, you don't need to be aerodynamic, so why would you want to fight a plane? Why not an octopus or a person? Seems fine to me. Certain lack of creativity, I think, because there's so many different shapes that you could be. Oh, if you don't think there are going to be a lot of different shapes, you just need to keep watching. Okay. Amuro is at best highly reckless and at worst maybe has a death wish. How many times do they warn him? You have to be back inside the white base in four minutes. Amuro, you need to come back. Amuro, you need to come back. But I haven't killed everyone yet. It might be related to his mother complex. Bright has become inured to being threatened with court martial. <laughs> None of that works on him anymore. These Federation officers are the boy who cried court martial. <laughs> 
They need to learn that you have to actually court-martial Bright or he'll never listen to you. Also, what was he supposed to do? Just die, I guess? Their solution to every problem is, I guess, just die then. <laughs> Any other physics stuff that you thought of? Oh, there's no sound in space. Buzzkill. Yeah. <laughs> Where does sound cease? How, how high up? Because in this episode, plausibly, they might be close enough to the atmosphere to have sound. Right. I would assume it just gets really dim. Right, so what is sound? Like, uh, in theory, on the moon, you could have sound by if you, like, hit the ground and someone has their ear against the ground and they hear the vibration. So as long mm -hmm. as there's stuff, you can have sound. Mm -hmm. So maybe Minovsky particles transmit sound. In addition to all the other stuff they do. Yeah. So if, if they're massive, they can do that. Yeah, they, yeah. they can vibrate. They can yeah. transmit sound. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, all you need is uh, you need the particles to be dense enough that they can bump into each other and transmit a wave. In this episode, Amuro briefly meets a young child, probably three or four years old, orphaned in the early days of the war, but cared for by an old man who might be his grandfather. The boy is obsessed with his remote-controlled toy race car. When it breaks, he's distraught until Amuro fixes it. His whole personality changes when he gets the toy back, and he runs blissfully around the room. Children around this age often have very strong emotional attachments to one particular object. A baby blanket, stuffed animal, pillow, favorite toy, etc. And these transitional objects, as they're called, create an emotional link to an earlier, safer time, and they stand in for the child's parents when they're absent. This provides them with comfort during times of anxiety. The child can become distraught if the object is missing or damaged. But for children who have experienced significant trauma, like the loss of both parents and an enemy attack that destroys their home, all of that is amplified. A child can become especially clingy and rely even more than usual on their comfort object, especially during times of stress and anxiety, like while fleeing constant enemy attacks as a refugee aboard a battleship. This kind of behavior is not limited to childhood. Older children and adults, too, during times of trauma and stress, often rely on similar transitional objects that connect them to safer times and stand in for the comforting presence of a significant but absent person. Something that makes you feel safe. Perhaps something with a strong connection to a parent. A gift from them, something they once owned themselves, or something they made. Like, perhaps an armored mobile suit, designed and built by your father. I doubt Gundam's creators were thinking in these terms when they wrote this child, but they came from a generation born before, during, and just after the war. Theirs was a generation marked by trauma, and their depictions of children and childhood reflect what they saw in themselves and in their peers. So after some research, it turns out that, at least for the space shuttle, that, as we all know, the U.S. used for quite a while to go out into space and come back in, for at least the parts of the, the shuttle that got the hottest, they used two different compounds. One for the areas that went up to 1,260 degrees Celsius, which is really hot. They used this thing called reinforced carbon-carbon. They have this network of graphite. Graphite is what your pencil tips are made out of. It's a very strong but brittle material. They reinforce it with carbon fiber, which is very similar. Both of them are made of carbon, which is why it's called reinforced carbon-carbon. But carbon fiber is a different arrangement of carbon atoms, which is more bendy. That's why they combine them. It's similar to how you put rebar in concrete in buildings, because concrete is very strong but brittle, and so it can't bend easily. Whereas if you put reinforced steel or iron or something in it, which is much more ductile, it can withstand bending much easier. And then in other parts of the space shuttle, so in areas that went up to 1204 degrees Celsius, which is not that much colder than the 1260 for the RCC that they used on the cone. But yeah, apparently this reinforced carbon carbon is expensive enough that they wanted to use a minimal amount of it. So in these other areas, they use what they just refer to as silica ceramics. So it's pretty much these fibers made of silica glass, which apparently can withstand really high temperatures, but not as high as carbon fiber and graphite. That's what those are made of. We can probably link to some stuff in the show notes. That's what we call them, show notes. Both the Musai and the Salamis 
that appear in this episode have these specialized reentry capsules. And my guess would be that the reentry capsules have these specialized ceramics that allow them to withstand the high temperatures of reentry, but those ceramics don't actually withstand things like missiles or gunfire or beam cannons. So the armor that is used on the warships allows them to withstand attacks, but not the high temperatures of reentry, which is why they have to have these specialized reentry capsules. The white base and the Gundam are remarkable, the white base especially, because it's both armored and able to withstand the heat of reentry. During the first impressions part of the episode, we mentioned Fukushima Daiichi. Specifically, what we're talking about is the disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. The Fukushima Daiichi power plant is located on the eastern coast of Honshu, the largest of the Japanese islands, about 60 miles south of Sendai and 140 miles north of Tokyo. On March 11, 2011, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake struck the coast of Japan. This is the strongest earthquake in Japanese history and the fourth strongest in the world since we first started recording earthquakes. It was followed less than an hour later by a tsunami wave between 13 and 15 meters tall. That's 42 to 49 feet, approximately the height of a three or four story building. If you're still having trouble visualizing how high that is, we're talking about a wave that would have flooded the Gundam's cockpit. The wave overtopped the plant's seawall, and it flooded the Daiichi nuclear plant. When the earthquake hit, the plant had automatically gone into a safety protocol called SCRAM that deactivated the reactors. Emergency diesel generators then came online to power the plant's cooling systems. Nuclear fuel rods are very, very hot and they have to be kept cool by constantly cycling cold water into the reactor. Power to run pumps, valves, monitoring systems, etc. for the cooling system is normally provided by the reactor itself, but in emergencies, those can all be run off of backup generators. But when the tsunami flooded the Daiichi plant, the diesel generators, underground and now underwater, failed. You would think they'd have some additional redundancies for a nuclear power plant. They did. There are battery backups that work after the diesel generators stop working, and in theory it could even be run off of the power grid. But the battery backups only lasted for eight hours. TEPCO, the company operating the plant, dispatched replacement batteries and mobile generators, but they were delayed because the roads were damaged. And when they did arrive, with just two hours to spare on those batteries, the new equipment could not be hooked up, because the connection point was flooded and they didn't have the right cables, which is just amateur hour. Power failed, and the reactors began overheating. On March 12, an explosion ripped through Reactor 1, followed by explosions in Reactors 3 and 4 in the following days. The area within 20 kilometers of the plant was evacuated, and between 150 to 170,000 people were displaced. That whole evacuation zone remains a no-go area today. Efforts to contain the disaster and clean up the radioactive contamination are still ongoing more than seven years after cleanup began. There's a whole lot more to this story, including corporate malfeasance, bad planning, and quite a lot of desperate individual heroism on the ground. But that will have to be a story for another time. What's really relevant for this episode is the attitude of people living in that 20-kilometer exclusion zone. While most people living in the exclusion zone did leave to move on to neighboring towns and temporary shelter, there were a handful of stories from 2012 and 2013 highlighting those who refused to leave. These stories include farmers who would not leave their livestock to starve, and people who were simply too old to think of moving. One household, a woman, her husband, and her 90-year-old mother, refused to leave because the mother, who had dementia, had made her daughter promise that she would die in her hometown. This family, however, was very sanguine about their prospects. The only real difference, as they saw it, was having to do without running water, as all the water lines had been shut down. But otherwise, their day-to-day -day life was relatively unchanged. In the immediate aftermath, many public health officials rated mental health issues caused by the trauma of the earthquake and the evacuation, loss of jobs and community, stress of displacement and uncertain housing situation, more serious than the risks posed by radiation exposure. In the years since then, the situation has changed. Families have broken up. Some people find it hard to return home alone if their spouse has passed away. People have new jobs and have gotten used to the conveniences of living in larger towns and cities. However, as of September of this year, of all those returning to towns that were once part of the exclusion zone, 49% are 65 years of age and older. For reference, in Japan as a whole, 26% of the population is over 65 years old. 
And so we see this contrast of younger people who have been able to build lives outside of their hometowns and the extremely strong pull of the hometown for older Japanese people. Would you say it has a kind of gravity? Are there, are there souls trapped by the gravity of their hometown? You don't get that reference yet. You will. I didn't want to explain it, but there's like actually a term in Japanese for like the hometown, capital H, mm-hmm. and its importance and significance and how many sappy ballads there are about it and poems and songs and it's a really big deal. <laughs> And we can understand why, even if it meant having to do without running water, a person might just choose to go back. How did they deal with the running water thing? Uh, So she describes going out to the local fire station one to two times a week and just picking up some large containers of water to take home. Early on in this episode, we met an old grandfather type who might have been a minor character, but I think he brings up something really interesting. So we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive into Japanese migration to South America. Starting all the way back in 1880, social and economic chaos caused by the new Meiji government's rapid modernization efforts caused huge numbers of Japanese to seek better lives in other countries. At first, the vast majority, more than 250,000 between 1880 and 1908, traveled to North America. But in 1907, after Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War, rising anti-Japanese racism in the western U.S. states led the United States and Japan to create an informal gentleman's agreement. The U.S. would not prohibit Japanese immigration so long as Japan did not allow any Japanese citizens to immigrate to the U.S. Canada had a similar agreement, limiting immigration to 400 Japanese men per year. For a while, Japanese people trying to move to the U.S. would travel to Mexico and then cross the border. So the Japanese government cracked down on immigration to Mexico as well. But all of those people desperate to get out of Japan had to go somewhere, and that somewhere was South America. From 1908 to 1937, nearly 475,000 people left Japan, and most of them settled in South America. The first immigrants were mostly male and mostly poor, either peasants ruined and displaced by land reforms and economic changes, or young men dodging military service. Later waves brought whole families and young women traveling as picture brides to arranged marriages with men already living abroad. Sometimes these immigrants were able to purchase land and establish thriving Japanese colonies, but far more often, the Japanese found employment in brutal contract labor jobs, little better than slavery, at plantations growing sugar, lumber, rubber, or coffee. 75% of the Japanese immigrants to South America before World War II settled in Brazil, mostly in the southern states of Sao Paulo and Paraná, regions of the country that also dominated the coffee growing industry. More than 60% of the world's coffee was grown in Brazil during this period, and most of it was grown in the South. Early Japanese immigrants would start out working on coffee plantations as wage laborers, but over two to five years could, and many did, transition to become sharecroppers, then to leaseholders, and finally to small farm owners. Japanese immigrants in Brazil were so successful at doing this, they actually gained a reputation among plantation owners as unreliable for long-term labor. Some of these Japanese immigrants were true sojourners, returning to Japan after saving up some money. But many settled in, bought farms, started businesses, married other Japanese or local people, and raised families in South America, ending up being called things like Senora Wakamura, and having children with names like, I don't know, Ryu Jose. This era of mass Japanese immigration to South America continued, with a brief interruption for the war. But the outflow effectively ended in the mid-1960s and early 1970s, when Japan's miraculous economic recovery eliminated the conditions that had inspired so many people to leave in the first place. And then it reversed. By 1979 and 1980, Japanese immigrants in South America and their descendants were moving to Japan looking for work in the booming economy there. At first, the Japanese government encouraged this, even passing laws that gave special visas to ethnic Japanese living in South America to come to work in Japan doing jobs that were difficult, dirty, and dangerous. But it turns out that Brazilian culture and Japanese culture are, like, a little bit different. Japanese people tend to have a high tolerance for foreigners not understanding Japanese culture, but very little tolerance for breaches of cultural decorum by other Japanese people. And if your parents are both full-blooded Japanese, then shouldn't you know how to behave, even if you have never lived in Japan a day in your life? Shouldn't the culture just live in you? And so the South American Japanese, who were foreigners in every practical way, were nonetheless seen by most in Japan as Japanese, full stop. 
Their inability to be Japanese was confusing, shameful, and intolerable. So those South Americans living in Japan did not integrate into Japanese society very well, to the actual legitimate shock and dismay of many on both sides. Soon, they were unwelcome in the Japan that they had thought was their homeland. When the economy started to slow down and unemployment in Japan surged, the government actually started offering these South American immigrants cash bonuses of around $3,000 if they would just go back to there. And when I use this term, imagine how difficult, complex, and painful it must be for people trapped between two cultures like this, home countries. The old grandfather, a South American coffee farmer, returning to the place he thinks of as his true home after years in space, reminds me a bit of those sojourners. A lot of us have been to a Japanese restaurant or been on an international flight where hot or cold towels are handed out for us to clean our hands. So Frabo handing out hot towels on the white base made me wonder a bit about just how old this particular cultural practice is. It turns out this practice actually dates from the 11th century. So this was the Heian period, the period in which the tale of Genji takes place, if you've heard of that novel where moistened towels were given to guests when they arrived at your home so they could clean themselves up. Okay, so for people who play video games, instead of reading classic Japanese literature like the first novel in the world in any language, arguably, the Heian era is the one that comes before all of the samurai and warring states stuff that we're perhaps more familiar with here in the West. Very, very old towels. It was also a very popular practice during the Edo period, so the 1600s, for tea houses to give these towels to travelers who stopped by the tea house to rest. And cleanliness is very important in Shinto, correct? Yes. Most of the Shinto rituals that I've gotten to learn about have to do with cleansing and purifying. In a culture that places a high value on cleanliness, the gesture of giving someone a hot or cold towel, depending on the season, is seen as one of hospitality and one that allows them to be more comfortable by cleaning themselves up from their travels. Here's a fun but unsourceable and so probably apocryphal story about the Gundam Hammer. While promoting First Gundam, Tomino talked constantly about how it was serious, realistic sci-fi, unlike all those silly giant robot series of the past. After episode 5 aired, some critics tried to pin him down on how exactly the Gundam Hammer was supposed to function, leading Tomino to tell them, come on, this is just silly giant robot anime, don't take it so seriously. I don't know if that happened, but I'm inclined to believe that something like it did happen because the Gundam Hammer, or G-Hams, as I and only I like to call it, is going to appear again when Sunrise and Tomino try to retcon it into realism, then it will be conspicuously absent in situations where we would expect to see it, and much later it will start cropping up in cameo-style appearances in later Gundam shows, in a way that feels like an inside joke acknowledging the weapon's patent silliness. It's a bit like an embarrassing mistake made in the show's childhood, furiously erased during its teenage years, and now, in its maturity, something we can all laugh about. We made the decision, starting with this episode, not to watch the very end of each episode where they do a next time on. Because, Tom informs me, they frequently spoil the next episode yep. in their next time ons. They will frequently tell you who dies and then ask you if you'll be able to survive. Wow. So rather than spoil the story, we have decided to truncate things a little bit and not watch that portion, even though it was part of all of the original episodes. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.6, Welcome to Earth, to talk about when the dop hits. Notice me, Onesan. Military-grade stimulants. Who gave those children champagne? The waiting is the hardest part. Char and Garma, best frenemies forever. If you lose, you're out of the family, Bright Coon. Amaro finally snaps. For Char, this is all according to Keikaku. And unexpected fan service. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. 
Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or come shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling that Relina is best girl on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. But later it will be referred to as Gundanium. Of course it will. shouldn't be drinking coffee is the thing. I have water here. Coffee with lemon in. Ooh, could I have some water? You can, but will I give it to you? It doesn't taste as sweet when I don't steal it. Yeah, I know. What do you do here, Raj, and why have we chosen to honor you by including (laughs) you on this podcast? No wonder... Actually, I have not upset the... I think it is a spoiler. But Xeon launched a lightning attack that destroyed a huge portion of their fleet, and then it was really hard for them to win the war in the Pacific. I mean, space. (laughs) The space specific. (laughs) I don't know that I would call myself an expert. I'm wrong too often to Well, that gives experts too much credit. Yeah. Alright, I'm the expert. Yeah, experts are wrong. I'm wrong exactly as often as an expert should be. some trashy standard issue carbon carbon this is reinforced i think that's fine i just wasn't sure if that was the end yeah that's the end